from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll talk today with author Frederick Joseph about his book, Patriarchy Blues, which takes a look at masculinity in its many forms in our culture, how it can be toxic, and how it can affect us differently, depending on our race or our gender or our sexual orientation. A really interesting discussion about what it means to be a man in America and what it means to live with men in America. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Uh, Look around at the headlines, and you might start to notice a trend. The violence that we see around us, the gun violence, the other kinds of violence. Who are the people who commit those acts. Mostly, it's boys and men. Rape, domestic violence, physical threats, all kinds of actions that threaten our safety and security in this country are conducted by men. And this defines the violent nature of our society in so many ways. Now, that's not to say that men are exclusively responsible for violence, and it's not to say that there aren't other factors that play into this. But when you think about what it means to be male in America, when you think about what masculinity is in America or how it's defined, So much of it leans toward this idea of machoism or aggression, the kinds of things that lead to violence. And then think of the contrast. Think of the things that we encourage men maybe not to do as much. A lot of men are taught not to hug or touch other men. We're taught to do less listening and more talking when we're in conversations. And of course, we know that boys are taught not to cry, sometimes in very cruel ways. Toughen up, suck it up, just take it. Frederick Joseph is an author who has thought a lot about what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine in our culture. And he's really unpacked the things that shaped his own life, the experiences he's had, that make him who he is. And in his most recent book, Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Manhood, he tries to put that in the context of the ways in which the rest of us think of that, the ways in which American culture deals with men and masculinity, how we deal with toxic masculinity, the things that threaten peace and safety and security for lots of other people. It's a really interesting reflection about masculinity, about white supremacy, about the intersectional ways in which power has an effect on our lives and how That power looks different depending on who we are. If you're a man, it's different than if you're a woman. If you're black, it's different than if you're white or Latino. If you're gay or queer, it's different than if you're straight. That's what we want to talk about today. What is 
the thing that makes us men or male in this society? And what effect does that have on everybody else? I'm really pleased to welcome Frederick Joseph to Detroit Today. It is really great to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's it's great to be here. Yeah. So I think to some, these are terms that they've heard before that I was using there in the open, but maybe they're new and maybe they really haven't had an opportunity to think a lot about what they mean and what they mean in their lives. So I want to start with uh, a couple of them and give you a chance to define them as you're dealing with them uh, in your book, uh, Toxic Masculinity and Patriarchy. Let's, let's start there. What do you mean when you say that? What does that look like? And how do they show up in our lives? So I'll work from the top. So patriarchy, I, I think a lot of people mistake what patriarchy is um, for its manifestations. So as an umbrella, patriarchy is the ways in which our society has created manifestations such as toxic masculinity, um, misogyny, misogynoir, transphobia, homophobia, all these various incarnations of this patriarchal structure um, that supposes that anyone who isn't a cisgender heterosexual man or or people in direct proximity to those people um, are somehow beneath, um, are somehow in a hierarchy, um, not as worthy. And I think that, you know, to your point, or your question rather about toxic masculinity, that is one of the ugliest ways that patriarchy um, rears its head because we, we presuppose what it means to be masculine who gets to be masculine, how masculinity shows up. And, and we frankly lie about what masculinity looks like, right? Oh, masculinity is when a boy falls, but he gets up and doesn't cry. Oh, masculinity is, you know, going out, as I've seen many people in the GOP do, uh, going out and, and, and shooting guns and hunting. And, you know, no, none of those things are masculinity. Masculinity and femininity are both, defined by individual and they live in both of us right there's aspects of me that are feminine there's aspects of me that are masculine there's aspects of my wife that are masculine and feminine right and it's just the ways in which certain traits as a person live in you like the parts of me that i would say um are feminine that are beautiful are the ways in which i am able to show certain emotions right that those aren't that doesn't make me a woman. It just makes me have feminine qualities, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what you know, my my wife has again masculine qualities. Uh, you know, such as she she tends to be stereotypically you know um, very stubborn about certain things, which is historically a very masculine trait um, that lives again in both people. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's really, I think, critical and interesting about this book is the use of uh, your personal narrative to try to sort through uh, these things. And you talk about coming to the realization uh, of what these terms mean over over time. Um, I, I do want to have you tell some of that story uh, to our listeners and to talk about uh, as first as a young man, as a young African-American man in uh, in this country, how you were taught about what it means to be male and what it means to be masculine. Yeah. So um, the way in which I started coming to terms with these things, actually um, two different moments in my life. I think first, when I got to college, I started really unpacking and, and learning more about white supremacy and how white supremacy manifests in our lives, right? The structures, the interpersonal ways, um, and, and just how insidious it is. Um, and, and, but in that learning, I also started learning more about patriarchy because our constructs of patriarchy, especially in the United States, are very much created um, and influenced by white supremacy, right? Part of what we see um, even right now in decisions such as the overturning of Roe v. Wade, 
that was not just a decision um, that was patriarchal. It was also white supremacist in that it will disproportionately impact black and brown communities. So I started doing that work, I would say, early um, in college. But then I found out that I have multiple sclerosis um, when I was about 24 years old. And in learning that, I started assessing more in, like more <laughs> more depth of who I am, if you, if, if I would say, hmm. right. Who am I as a person? And doing that, I started looking at all these things I had learned pa- about patriarchy and white supremacy, not just as structures, but how do they manifest interpersonally? Right. Cause I think that we do a lot of talking and learning, um, whether it's about anti-racism or feminism or whatever pertaining to structures. But the way I think that we lack in this country is a real understanding of, let's say we say, oh, well, there's, there's, you know, misogyny and racism in our education systems. Great. That's a very high level concept. Let's also talk about what that means for people who are students in this education system. Right. So I started writing patriarchy blues about my own personal experiences about how I have been taught patriarchy, how I have been taught misogyny, how I have been taught violence and toxic masculinity. Um, and, and, and knowing that me talking about how I have been taught these things, as opposed to keeping it high level, you know, macro and structural might help other people see how they're implicated as well. Right. If you're like, Oh my God, I had a similar experience or I was a part of a similar experience or I saw a similar experience meaning that I'm not absolved, you know, me being the reader, I'm not absolved of being implicated in what he's talking about or what other people are talking about high level. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about that moment, the, one of the moments you're talking about, this, this realization that you come to that, uh, that you have MS and the role that vulnerability and the consciousness of vulnerability often plays in the way that we come to think of how uh, how you are either male or not, how you are masculine uh, or not. Often um, it is that realization that you are vulnerable and the realization that that vulnerability doesn't make you weak or less than uh, other people, it doesn't. It doesn't take away from who you are. Uh, that leads us to, I think, think more about masculinity and the th- and reconsider the things that we're often taught as young men about how to be tough and how to be masculine. Yeah, I mean, I, I make the argument um, that none of us um, who adhere to patriarchal standards are getting to be full humans, right? Like, um, and I talk about this in the book, you know, some of my earliest instances of like, you know, just being plain and, um, you know, trigger warning for those who are listening, you know, I'm someone who has a, as a child, I was molested. Um, I'm someone who was molested for years. Um, and in that I didn't have the language as, as a young man growing up in society, as a young black man specifically, who is hypersexualized by society, right? It's like, oh, you're supposed to want to to have this engagement with a woman, right? That's that's what my that's what the movies tell you, that's what the music tells you, that's what people around you tell you. And therefore I didn't even know that having been molested was a bad thing until I was much older. And so I held on to a slew of emotions, but those emotions actually evolved into this, quite frankly, a, a hatred of a real, like, a real deep misogyny in my own life. And and even and I became a womanizer as a younger man, right? Because this this thing that happened to me, this language I didn't have, these these resources and outlets I didn't have to unpack what had to take in place turned into, okay, well, this happened and this is supposed to be good. So I'm just going to do this all the time. And I think that those types of things, whether we're talking about hypersexuality or or even talking about violence, I talk about that in the book as well, right? How does a, how does a young man, a boy unpack and, and discern when to use violence, especially in a very violent society, especially like for young kids of color, 
who are treated violently in the country that they live in, if, you know, in America and, and just really everywhere globally. Um, how do you discern when to use violence? How do you how do you navigate? I'm protecting myself. How does that evolve into I'm harming someone else? Right. And what resources do we have to to create space for that? We don't. And I'm hoping that this book helps people reflect not just on the harm being caused, but the spaces we need to be creating. I'm talking with Frederick Joseph, who is uh, the author of Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Man- Manhood. He is a New York Times bestselling author of The Black Friend. He's also a Forbes uh, 30 Under 30 list maker for marketing and advertising. He's an activist and a philanthropist. Uh, we're talking about masculinity and what it means to be male in America, the things that we tell young boys about what it means to be male in America, the things we try to make them do uh, and be when they when they grow up. Uh, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social media about what you think of what it means to be male in America. If you're a guy, do you feel like you have healthy outlets to express things like aggression or vulnerability? Talk to us about the things that you were taught as a young man about what it means to be male and what it means to be masculine. If you're not male, if you live with males, if you have to put up with all of us, we want to hear how masculinity and male identity affects you. What does it mean in your life to live with somebody who is thinking one way, perhaps, about uh, what it means to be male, maybe struggling with what it means to be male. Uh, How does that affect you? How does that affect our culture? Uh, How does it affect your household? Uh, I'm always uh, a little amazed by how much uh, those of us who are not male in America put up with men and all of the things that uh, that we do and can do. Uh, again, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can work you into the conversation uh, uh, that way. Uh, Frederick, I want to talk about, uh, again, the ways we teach young boys to, to be men, to grow up, to be good men. Um, and I want to talk about a specific, uh, a specific theme, which is, which is crying. I mentioned it in the open. And I think it's one of the most accessible ways to even think about the way that we raise boys. Uh, this idea that you are not supposed to cry when bad things happen, right? You're supposed to tough it out. You are not supposed to show, quote unquote, uh, weakness. You write in the book uh, about crying and the fact that you were not uh, somebody who would even allow yourself to cry until something really specific uh, specific happened. I, I want you to talk about that experience and and what it tells you about again being a man in America. Yeah, I mean, crying is a key component to the human experience, right? As is laughing, as is love, um, and and so many other emotions, but. You know, I, I like many other um, men, boys, young men, um, were taught, you know, you're not supposed to cry. Um, and when you teach people that they're not supposed to have key components to the human experience, I think in, in, in reality, they become a bit less human, right? Um, and, and in that humanity that they're lacking, they also replace um, what should have been tears oftentimes with anger, Right, oftentimes with disillusionment and, and, and other feelings. And and then you have now this disproportionate um sense of rage that grows in a person. And I and I do think that that is a pipeline to a lot of the issues that we have globally, right? You know, they 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 always make jokes um on, on social media. They'll say things like, Oh, instead of going to therapy, um, he decided to, whatever, like I saw one, I was like, instead of Elon Musk going to therapy, he decided to buy Twitter, right? And while those are, you know, those are funny jokes, but they're actually, but they're true, right? That's what makes them funny, is that we have not 
create a pipeline for a lot of young men to be whole human beings. And so they're rageful people mm-hmm. who are erasing other people's humanity. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what happened in your life that told you it was okay to cry? <laughs> you know, I, I think for me, um, it's still a journey that I'm actually on right now. Like I, I'm, I cry now. I cried almost everything. Give me a good movie and I'm in tears. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but I do think that um, a key part of me learning to access my total range of emotions has been therapy, for one. Um, and, and I'd also say um, meeting my partner. And, and, and ironically, not ironically, but like funny enough, having a dog, um, there's <laughs> like, like legitimately, um, you know, I had already been in therapy. I had already met my partner. But when we got my dog, um, there was this, 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 this level of love and, and, ex, and like a lack of expectation that almost allowed me to free myself of expectations for myself other than being, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all these things along my journey um, that I've had. Um, and, and I think lastly, my little brother was born. So my brother is actually, um, Jesus, almost, almost 25 years younger than me, 20 years younger than me. Um, so when, so yeah, when, when he was born, there was a sense of responsibility that I found myself having in wanting to be someone that he could look up to. And I don't think that I felt like that when he was born, right? I don't think that I felt like I was that person. So, um, you know, that was the work, not just in how do I become a better human being, but like, how do I actually look in the mirror to do that in a way that's, that's, that's real and honest. And I, and looking at my faults and a lot of those faults had to do with patriarchy. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Frederick Joseph about his book, Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Manhood, and the whole idea of manhood and masculinity in America. We will start to get to you, all of the listeners, on the phones and on social media. Sean in River Rouge, Anne in Troy, Derek on the east side, uh, you'll be up first. If you want to join them, 313 577 1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've got a really wonderful guest today, Frederick Joseph, who's the author of Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Manhood. We're talking about manhood and masculinity in our our country and our culture, uh, talking about the ways in which it has negative effects on uh, not only men, but also on those of us who have to live uh, with men and uh, put up with uh, masculinity and aggression that uh, that often accompanies uh, manhood in in America. We're also talking though about uh, how we kind of turn the corner uh, on that and and get to a space where men feel more secure expressing and indulging vulnerability, uh, become more whole persons uh, than, than often we are allowed to be. As always, uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we can work into the conversation. I love that we already have uh, a woman queued up to, to talk about this. Uh, we really do want women to participate in this conversation as well because women, you live with men. You are part of the culture. Culture, uh, that is shaped by masculinity and toxic masculinity. We want to know 
what that feels like, what that looks like, uh, what things men could be doing and thinking differently uh, that would make it different or better for you. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can go to Facebook or Twitter and we can get you into the show that way. Let's start today with Sean in River Rouge. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let me start off by saying I am currently reading Patriarchy Blues. Oh, good. Um, I have been, yeah, I have been following Fred for about a year and a half now. Um, but my story, oh, I'm a black gay man who grew up in a lower socioeconomic area. Um, and I was a feminine, so everyone in my life tried to beat that out of me. It was always, don't stand this way, don't walk this way, don't talk this way. So as I got older, things started to happen. I became a little bit angry. Um, this was around like the um, Trayvon Martin era. Um, and then I was told, well, you're, because I'm six foot one. I'm, at that time, I was 300 pounds. Hmm. So then I was told, well, you're too big. You can't express anger because it can get you killed. Hmm. So it went from being too feminine to... Now you have to check yourself and make sure that you're not showing too much emotion because it could end your life. Yeah. Um, so I had to grow up and really figure out for myself who I was, what I wanted to be, and what I wanted to represent. Um, and sometimes I still struggle with it because I'm, if, I, if I show too much emotion, now I feel like, oh, well, no, I shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm um, angry about something, it's like, okay, you have to internalize that because you don't want to scare anybody away. Sean, I I love that you called and shared as much as you have about that experience. And, you know, I I first of all hope for you that, uh, you know, that this gets easier over time and that, uh, you know, as you get older and have more experiences, you feel more comfortable defining all of these things for yourself rather than, uh, you know, having other people try to tell you how to how to define them, but uh, but but there's a lot to, to 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 sort of comb over in what you were what you were talking about. Uh, not just masculinity, but race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, identity, all of those things. Uh, Fred, I, I will of course give you a chance to to respond to what Sean's talking about here. Yeah, well, first and foremost, um, Sean, thank you for calling in and and for reading the book and following. I, I deeply appreciate it. I, I, I think that what's being talked about really is the intersectionality about all this, and, and that's what's so important for us to constantly focus on, right? And I, and I tried to make patriarchy booths as intersectional as possible, which is why, you know, a lot of times, especially in, like, more mainstream typically white feminist narratives, you know, patriarchy is solely um, sexism and misogyny. And it's, it's not that simple. It's also homophobia. It's also transphobia, so on and so forth. And I think that um, it's also race, right? Which is why a lot of black women historically have identified as womanist, um, or very specifically said, I am an intersectional feminist, um, you know, and, and, and whatnot. And I think, you know, in, in Sean's case, right, it's like, that is the patriarchy, right? That it is the patriarchy, that is white supremacy. The fact that a, you know, uh, a, a black gay man can't, um, can't uh, emote in a way that other people can because of fear um, at being killed, right? I deal with that on a regular basis. I'm six foot two, I'm about 250 pounds or so. Um, so on, on a regular basis, I have people, I've had people run up to me in the street and they're like, I hate your work. I hate your book. Like literally. And I have to stay in my body, um, <laughs> out of fear that if I get too loud, someone might call the police and shoot me. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are real things that I think we need to be talking about, right? Like how do, again, how we all, how we all, um, uh, excuse me, how are we all a part of how these structures are upheld, right? Like, like I think that in Sean's case, that's not just about what men are doing. It is also about what men are doing. It's also about what whiteness is doing. It's about what um, people who are homophobic are doing. It's mm-hmm. about um, what, a, what, a, what a bigoted society as a whole is doing. Yeah. So, so I, I want to pause for just a second and talk just a little more about – uh, the safe quote unquote space that African American men have to occupy in American culture 
Um, and that you and Sean gave great examples of the threat of physical uh, um, violence that people feel from just our presence, right? Um, and and uh, you put it perfectly, we've got to stay in our bodies as a way of not projecting any, any of those threats. But that's such, it's also a much broader uh, restriction that, that we as African-American men live under. Um, the, the safety that, uh, that requires us to suppress any notion of sexuality in, in public spaces, right? Uh, it is not safe to be an African-American male who has sexual identity or desires in so many spaces. Uh, again, in our own culture, uh, the safety of uh, not being not being effeminate, not being soft, quote unquote. Um, you know, there are there are so many ways in which uh, it is hard to be yourself. Uh, of course, uh, if you are male and an African American. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And you know, my goal in some of my work is to kind of not just not just get us out of certain boxes, but destroy the boxes, right? I think that I want to see a society, um, and my work aims to create a society, you know, where people just are, right? Like, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a black man, maybe tomorrow I feel like going outside and wearing a dress, right? But then people in my own community might have an issue with that. Maybe the next day, um, you know, something happened on the news, let's say, um, another police murder of a black man or black woman. And maybe I just want to walk outside my house and scream, mm-hmm. right? Without being worried that that scream is going to then ultimately get me killed. Maybe, maybe I just came from the gym and I have on uh, a tank top and I don't want to be fetishized by the white women in my neighborhood. Maybe all these different things, right? So like my work is aiming to make us all see how we're all implicated, right? And we haven't even gotten to the you know, the conversations necessarily even about like, again, transphobia and, 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 you know, you know, things like that, where it's like, again, people deserve to be able to just be their full human selves without any boxes whatsoever. And I do think that that's the biggest issue in patriarchy is that it's destroying that, 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 that ability. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Again, Sean, uh, really do appreciate the call and, and your sharing and, and hope the best, uh, uh, for you with that with that struggle. Let's go next to Anne in Troy. Anne, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, first, I just want to say um, Sean's words touched me. Um, and that I'm a white woman who's been married to a white man for many for a long time, and for um, lack of better words, he's been a bully through the years. And I came to a point where I said, you know, you got. You got to stop being a bully. And when he realized he didn't want to lose what he had, he started doing his own soul searching and realized that he has trauma. Mm. And, you know, what Frederick said about, you know, men not being able to be soft and express their feelings, he came to me and he said, that's part of my problem. He says, I, I have no way to express when I'm sad or scared. And he says, and it comes out in anger. So I'm wondering if Frederick can speak to how trauma creates oppression and oppression creates trauma. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, Anne, before, before we get to Fred, I, I have a quick question. Do, do you have children with your husband? Yes. So how does he relate to them? I don't know if they're boys or not, but uh, what, what is his sort of, you know, relationship with them in terms of this issue? That's a great, great question. One boy, one girl. They're adults now, and young adults. And he, um, he wanted to toughen up my son. And he would say over the years, you know, it's it's a man's world. It's a tough world. He's got to be tough. Mm-hmm. And he actually taught my son to be tough. And my son's had conversations with me, you know, separate and not like being against their, his dad or anything, but just saying. Um, yeah, like, I don't always want to be tough, Mom. He says, it's a new generation, you know, like, I'm allowed to cry, and, I'm, and I do cry, and I'm like, good, so 
son. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. often, and my husband said throughout the years, said, um, I don't know what to do with a girl. I don't know what to do with a girl. Wow. Wow. Uh, and I really love that you called uh, and and brought up these these issues and uh, again shared your story uh, Frederick her, her specific question is about trauma and the way that it creates uh, oppression and that uh, you know it, it plays a huge role in many cases in this idea of uh, of masculinity you know veering into the realm of, of toxic masculinity yeah, well, first and foremost, and thank you for calling in. I, I think what you've done is heroic um, in that you gave someone this space to reflect and, and, you know, basically give them the opportunity to grow, right? Say like, hey, I need you to grow. If you're unwilling to do that, then I have to create my own boundaries, but I'm giving you an opportunity to grow. That's, that's, that, in my opinion, is heroic, and it's something that as a society, we don't oftentimes do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think another thing I'll note before answering the question is I really love, actually, that you're a caller who's a white woman and married to a white husband. I think what oftentimes happens with some of the work that I'm trying to do and the books that I'm writing is people, without realizing necessarily that they're doing it, as a, as a black writer, people assume um, – <laughs> that my but books are like solely you're writing for, for black people <laughs> for black people right i'm just right um it's like well no the book is the book is about these structures i just happen to be a black person within the structures but i'm writing for everyone right like i'm not even just writing solely for men right the book does also very much talk about transphobia and stuff yes. and how we are all implicated in that so on and so forth but anyway to the point i i think that we have to do everything in our power to reflect on our trauma because I, because, because so often, I mean, like I, I talk to not just men, but people across the board on a regular basis. And in many ways, all of us by a certain point of our lives are an amalgamation of our joyful moments and our traumatic moments. Right. Mm -hmm. And we show up in the world based on those very often. Right. Like I said, I was someone who, after being molested as a as an eight year old, nine year old, and ten year old for those for those years, I you know I, I showed up in the world as a teenager and a person in my early twenties who was hypersexual, right? Who was hypersexual and and womanizing because I I had this deep disdain for women, right? In the same way, you know, you look at even like violence, right? Like I tell this one story in patriarchy about trauma with violence. So, you know, it is my belief that um, the most oppressed group, not just in this country, but in the world, is the black trans woman, right? right? Because Mm -hmm. of the intersectional oppression that black trans women face. And, and, And black women as a whole are deeply oppressed. And so... I have watched um, in my in my environments on TV and so on and so forth as black women have been mistreated. So um, I remember moments where I would see things happening to black women and comp and trying to you know in, in what I thought was protecting them, showing up as a violent person to protect the black woman against whatever might have been happening, but without the discernment of the level of violence or if I necessarily needed to be using violence to to support that black woman or having conversations about what support looks like. Right. And that was all based on the trauma of watching black women be traumatized. (laughs) So again, we are all walking around. I, 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 I use this all the time in my household. We're all walking around with bags, right? Like we have this luggage that we carry and, and in it we're holding good moments, bad moments, pain, struggles, so on and so forth. Unless you unpack and get rid of certain things, you really can't make room for others, right? So you have to actually unpack the traumas you've dealt with to make room for the person and the joy you're trying to have. And if you haven't done that, all you have to give is what's in that bag. So, you know, in the instance of Anne's husband, if he is being um, a bully, as she said, right, a lot of that is probably, like he said, a manifestation of what's in his bag. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, 
We're going to continue this conversation with Frederick Joseph and with you, the listeners, about masculinity and toxic masculinity, <clears throat> the defining characteristics of being male in America and how we sort of redefine those to be more uh, full, more vulnerable, more all of the things that we kind of tell young boys they often shouldn't be. 313-577-1019 is the number. If you want to join the conversation, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and our guest is Frederick Joseph, author of Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Manhood, having a conversation about manhood and masculinity, how it defines our culture, how it's defined by our culture, uh, and how men can break beyond the barriers of those definitions, stretch beyond those limits to be fuller and more accepting of things that we're often told aren't very male. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Let's go to next to Derek on the east side. Derek, what's on your mind? Hi. Hey. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Uh, thank you um, for having me on, Stephen and Frederick. Um, me, myself, I'm an 80s baby, uh, heterosexual male. And at this time, um, from the male perspective, uh, it was I was taught to be, uh, in order to be a good leader, you had to be an excellent follower. Hmm. And that became a double-edged sword in in the work atmosphere. And then from the female perspective, um, I've gotten taught the, to be the ultimate, the ultimate protector and provider. But when it comes to disciplining in the home or disciplining period, um, whether it be, uh, my son or whether it be, uh, female, um, the female, daughter, niece, or anything that you feel that you naturally came up in, um, in your moral compass or things that kind of have had you come out in a, you know, pretty good, decent person, you get crucified Mm. and not um, emasculated Mm. to the point where your presence will be annihilated out of the situation. And if you, you, it, 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 then it turns into what do I stand up for? Do I stand up for the uh, ultimate legacy or the namesake of not just being a man, but showing, you know, what rules and regulations that I mm-hmm. should stand for as a, as a situation to say, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very touchy situation in today's culture. And it just has me really trying to guide my son on eggshells nowadays about when and what and why and how it's almost like a day-to-day uh experience to experience situation real time yeah derek uh really appreciate the call and the the really introspective take that you have uh, on all of this uh frederick joseph what's your reaction you know I, I, I it's funny i was talking to someone recently um and they were saying you know, I just didn't say anything about it because I just didn't want to get it wrong. Um, so I just decided to bow out and not say anything because, you know, right now, society we live in, you know, everything you say is, is, is an issue. And I said to that person, like, you know, I don't agree with that. I think that people take people in good faith and bad faith, dependent upon what you're trying to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. So so I, I, I think that we live in a – we live – I think we live in a moment in time that is when people are being asked to do something they've never been asked to do before, grow. Right? Like, <laughs> I, I think that people have never legitimately been asked to grow, not, not be asked to give someone civil rights, 
base, right? Like, like that's a that's a baseline. That's something we're still asking for. But that's but that's not solely what this moment is. This is not oh, give us the right to vote or give us the ability to um, uh, to get a job or to not or 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 to drink at that water fountain, right? This moment is the person you see in the mirror. Can you be better for the person that you have next to you mm. and how they show up in the world as a human? So it's not easy work, right? And and I think that the work has to be with that person in the mirror. So I don't, I don't know. I, I'm. It might be roundabout what I'm saying um, based on you know Derek's point. I, I I think that people have to be prepared to to fall stumble and get back up in this work and in this moment but if you are doing it for the right reasons and someone tells you that they're you're harming them i think if you're willing to listen and then say hey i'm going to pivot i i think the moment's not that difficult yeah yeah uh, diane on twitter says she was asked a question by a group of women what would you do if there were no men around for a day, her answers were everyday things like go pump gas at night, go for a walk alone at night, go grocery shopping at night. She says most men don't worry about doing those things. Women do. Uh, let's go next to Valerie in Ferndale. Valerie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. And mm -hmm. Frederick, I just really honor um, the conversations that you're lifting up around this really vitally important topic. And so just a bit about me. I'm a 45-year-old um, Caucasian female. <clears throat> I'm also a social worker, and I work primarily with um, college-age um, individuals as a clinician, and but also I'm a mother of a son and a daughter, um, ages 11 and 7. And in my training as a social worker and in my clinical practice, there's just been an inundation of statistics and information that one in four girls will be sexually assaulted. One in four women will be in an abusive relationship. One in four women will need to terminate a pregnancy at some point in their lives. And it's, in a, it's a burden that kind of everywhere you turn, there's some sort of, you know, imminent threat um, that is coming our way. And those threats also have such a traumatic heaviness to them that it's almost immobilizing. And what I want to see is what are the same statistics for boys and men? How many, you know, one out of how many boys will sexual assault? How many, you know, one out of how many boys will be abusive to a partner? Um, will be responsible for, you know, helping end a pregnancy? Because then the burden is at least shared. These are not just women problems. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, I organized with my female friends and a little upset that my husband wasn't as angry <laughs> as he should be in my eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and so seeing this collective, I'd love to see men marching down the street on behalf of women, um, truly demonstrating the support. Um, you know, my son is seven years old. When he was about five, we were at a street fair, and he just went and hugged this little girl. And I didn't know who she was. I didn't think he knew her. I'm looking at the mom, like, do they know each other? And I called my son over and I said, I want you to stop, Nico, because you didn't. Did you ask her permission? Um, and so I made him redo it and go ask her permission. <laughs> and she said yes. And they hugged and it was really adorable. But it was those micro moments yeah. of just trying to pause and teach my son consent, not yeah. just teach my daughter how to stay out of harm's way. Wow. So I want to see more marketing. I want to see targeted information in men's bathroom. If you're having urges of aggression, if you're having urges of sexual assault, where do they then go? Right. Uh, because the shame will cloak them and yeah. continue to perpetrate. So, Frederick, I love and appreciate this conversation that you were lifting up. It's vitally important, and it feels really tangible and empowering. So yeah. thank you for hosting this conversation. Yeah, Valerie, thanks so much for, for calling and sharing that, and that wonderful story uh, about your son. Um, Frederick, uh, react to what she's talking about here. Yeah, well, first and foremost, thank you for calling in. Um, before I react to what Valerie said, I think this, that actually the point that was made on Twitter by Diane mm -hmm. actually is a really good tie-in, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I do think oftentimes this idea that certain issues aren't other people's issues, right? Like, let's say Roe v. Wade um, is not an issue um, for men, right? Which is drastically and horribly wrong mm -hmm. for various reasons I'll talk about in a second. But I think this idea somewhat comes from we naturally do this thing where we separate ourselves, right? So, like, even when Diane said, you know, um, 
you know, if there were no men, she would um, be able to pump gas and walk alone at night grocery shopping. It was interesting because I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds very familiar as a black person, (laughs) right, in a world without white people for a day. So, like, so now my thought is, oh, this is interesting. So can we have a conversation about the harm that men are causing you and the harm that white people are causing me so we can both be better at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Because one of my biggest fears in society is actually white women. Um, a lot of times in progressive spaces, whether it's um, working or doing the work that I do as a whole, I have to interact with a lot of white women. And so, for example, um, I went to an event recently and I was walking to my car and I was pulling my keys out my pocket um, coming from an event where I was speaking and the woman, the white woman didn't know who I was and she started screaming, right? Maybe something happened in her past where she, someone assaulted her, let's say, and I'm a man. But also, I'm now dealing with the trauma of a white woman screaming, right? So there's two things happening at once, right? And that's why intersectionality is so important um, in these conversations. We have to be better for each other. Um, We've only got about 30 seconds left. I just want to cover that. So interestingly enough, that ties right into what Valerie said, um, because I do think that we have to have these conversations about consent and even like Roe v. Wade, because you look at something like Roe v. Wade, and I'm actually really sad that her husband wasn't more um, angry or interested in, in the situation happening, because... That <laughs> disproportionately affects black and brown communities. It disproportionately yes. um, not, doesn't just affect women, right? This will affect men as well. How many men have been benefited from women having abortions, right? Yes. So these are the conversations, to Valerie's point, we need to be having how all these things impact all of us across the board, not just the most surface-level group that's being affected. Yeah. Okay, Frederick Joseph, it was really, really wonderful to have you here to have this conversation, and congratulations on your book. That's going to do it for us this week. Uh, Come back on Monday when uh, we're going to talk with Caleb Gale about his new book, We Refuse to Forget, which delves into the complex and mixed historical backgrounds that a lot of us share as Americans.